Some say that alongside this see-it-to-believe-it world is the shadowy realm of the supernatural. Sometimes the residents of that dimension touch us, and in one moment, our lives are changed forever. America's Lady of Supernatural Thrillers, Mary Ann Pohl, is your real ghost chatter host. On this podcast, you'll hear stories by real people who have seen real ghosts. Gordon tells us about an unwelcome encounter with his dead father-in-law, and Lori tells us about a dead logger who looked for his wife and daughter for years after his death until she helped him find peace. Then there's Victoria, who shares her story of a long-dead pig, Edna June, who still watches over her ranch. Did you know a cafe in Anchorage, Alaska is haunted by the ghost of a woman who was blown to bits by a hired hitman? Once in a while, Mary Ann will podcast a tale taken from the genre she loves best, the supernatural. These are just a few of the stories you will hear, and these stories just keep coming. Welcome to today's Real Ghost Chatter episode. Marianne Paul, America's Lady of Supernatural Thrillers, a charter member of Author Masterminds, and your host on Real Ghost Chatter. If you are enjoying Raven's Cove and would like a signed copy, you can purchase it or any other of the books in the Iconoclast series at www.maryannpoll.com. Here's the next few chapters from Raven's Cove. If you're at home, grab your favorite drink, settle into your favorite listening spot. If you're on the road, stay safe. In either event, enjoy. Chapter 12, A Suspect Surfaces. No, Mrs. Telemut, this is not a ghost, Kat stated. The old legends of Raven's Ravine are being stirred up like a long silent bee's nest getting bumped in the spring, Kat thought. It's the legend, it has come to life. This is not a legend, Mrs. Telemut. These are homicides. Killings just like in the legend, Katrina, the legend handed down. This thing is back. These are murders, Mrs. Telemut. Don't believe this is the supernatural, so lock your doors and make sure Benny is on guard. Benny doesn't do much more than bark these days, Mrs. Telemut said of her half-wolf, half-husky. At least he could warn you. If Benny barks, you call here or my cell, okay? Yes. Mrs. Telemote sounded somewhat relieved as they hung up. The door chimed just as Cat returned the phone to its cradle. Bart and Agent Melbourne walked in. They obviously reached some sort of truce earlier, but the suspension of hostilities didn't explain Bart acting like he just found his long-lost friend. Bart? Morning, Cat. Thanks again for coming in. How's it going? Bart asked. Cat watched he and Ken continue toward Bart's office deep in conversation. Mr. Smooth stopped in his tracks as if he'd just been snapped out of a trance, looked back and said, Good morning, Cat. The ire rose. You have no invitation to call me by the name reserved for my closest friends and family. It's Miss Tovslowski to you, Agent Melbourne. Cat turned to her report and began to type fast. Ken smiled. She's a looker, his Uncle Ed would have said. Dark hair, green eyes, small upturned nose. Appeared somewhat Irish and yet not. 
Whatever the genes, they had come together to make her someone hard to ignore. He decided to call her cat anyway. It fit. On the ready, claws out, one warning swipe accompanied by a growl. This could be fun. I wonder how angry she'll get, he thought. Ken resumed the conversation with Bart, who, to his surprise, possessed more knowledge than Ken first thought. In fact, Bart was a bright man and well-studied, made it somewhat understandable as to why he resisted any help. His stubbornness struck a deep chord in Ken. It's like looking at my own reflection. Bart stopped at his doorway. Did they find Amos yet? Nope, but Arnie did say they would get here as soon as he could track him down. Interrupt me for Amos or a call from the Anchorage ME. Bart and Ken entered Bart's office. Cat could hear murmuring and hushed sounds as they worked to piece the puzzle together. Cat prayed they could. A dead John Doe made it scary. A dead member of Raven's Cove made it personal, then terrifying. God help us. Cat did not make a habit of praying, but she thought a small plea couldn't hurt. The Emmy's office called at the same time Amos and Arnie sidled through the door. When it rains, it pours. What? Arnie Thurling asked. Sorry, talking to myself today. I'll be right with you. Do you need me for anything? I've got a boat to overhaul and winterize. No, just Amos. Thanks for finding him for us, Arnie. She graced him with a dazzling smile. Arnie relaxed, hung his head, and grinned like a schoolboy. Welcome, miss. Cat put the Emmy's call through to Bart and escorted Amos to the coffee room, which doubled as their interrogation room. How's the fishing? No luck, but there's always tomorrow. I sure won't have any luck later today when I'm done here, thanks to Sheriff Bart wanting to talk. I know, but you have discovered two bodies in two days. Don't you think they might be a little more important than fishing? Amos wrinkled his brow in thought. The gesture said it all about Amos and about most of the town's residents. Nothing took precedence over fishing. Guess so, he said, half meaning it. Make yourself comfy, Amos. Cat offered him a cup of black coffee, packets of fake cream and real sugar, and a red stir stick. Amos relaxed. Thanks. Cat smiled and left to tackle the all-elusive report. Chapter 13. An Angel Speaks. Josiah walked toward the small church at the end of Maine as fast as his aged body would allow. He passed the adult shop. Late morning, yet the place stood silent. The lights were off. The lack of activity spoke volumes. Josiah's morning prayers confirmed his feeling about another death. He knew someone connected with Raven's Cove to be the victim. His heart grew heavy. The owner of this place had welcomed evil into his life. Josiah knew an eternal soul had again been lost to the evil one. So many, oh God, so many. Anger, then urgency, replaced sadness. The thing, all he could call it, as he did not know its name, grew stronger at an even faster rate than he first suspected. It must be drawing strength from a source in addition to the victims, he thought. As if to confirm this, the Congregational Alliance building drew his attention. He chose to walk on the opposite side of the street to get a better view of the black being guarding the door. What a beautiful building to accommodate such evil. Uriel, the angel who accompanied Josiah on his journeys, spoke. Look with your mind's eye, Josiah. Why would such evil be at home in a building of worship? Understanding dawned. Josiah realized this church and what went on behind its closed doors strengthened the thing. Just like all evil beings, adoration gave it as much, if if not more, power than the violence it so craved. Pride goeth before the fall, dark one. Pride goeth before the fall. He whispered the well-known verse of Proverbs to the dark being covering the door. 
The traumatist shivered as if a cold breeze touched his black core. He turned blood-red eyes on Josiah. You do not fear me, evil one, and it is not you I fear. I fear the one who is true and just. Fear him. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, Josiah's voice rose and caught the attention of a passerby. The woman stopped in her tracks. She crossed to the sidewalk in front of the Congregational Alliance, walking through the invisible tail of the mist. The traumatist strengthened when he encountered the passerby's fear. The deceit is endless, O God. How are we to know? Josiah lamented. A traumatist refocused his attention on Josiah. A long fog of an arm shot out and toward Josiah. Uriel stepped in front of Josiah, raising a golden sword toward the appendage. He is not yours. A traumatist glared at the angel. You have the advantage this time. But we have plans for that man, and once we have the soul's iconoclast needs, you won't stop us. The traumatist's semi-transparent limb snaked back to his body. Enjoy your small victory for now. We will win this war. Chapter 14, A Better Suspect. Paul Lucas fell to his knees in prayer when he heard of Miggy Salisto's death. I never condoned Miggy's business, but, oh God, I agonized over the eternal fate awaiting him. Now it is too late, and I grieve for another one lost to deceit. Why do you allow the Congregational Alliance to exist? It approves of its members practicing the black arts and peddling pornography, which is directly against your teachings. How, oh God, can you let it continue? The door opened and Paul turned. His heart sank. We must talk, Pastor Lucas. Paul examined the deep lines creasing Josiah's face. Shock flooded Paul. The deep contours evidenced a burden on this man Paul had missed. No, ignored, the day before. Forgive me, Lord, Paul whispered. What can I do for you, Mr. Josiah Williams, he hurried on. Please hear me out before you cast me from your church as a crazy old man. I have not always been the way I am now. Paul motioned for Josiah to sit beside him on one of the folding chairs serving as pews for his church. First, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I did not believe until a few years ago. I lived what I thought to be a wonderful life, complete with a beautiful wife and two beautiful children. I did not spend much time at home. I traveled for work, and when in town, I patronized the local bar most nights until it closed. My friends were my drinking buddies. Where is your family now, Mr. Williams? Why are you in Raven's Cove without them? They are dead, Pastor. Have been for over 10 years, and it is my fault. Alarm bells sounded in Paul's head. Is this the murderer making a confession? He prayed for guidance and help. How is it your fault, Josiah? Paul placed a shaky hand over the man's brown wrinkled one. I did not protect them. They were murdered while I whooped it up at my favorite bar. You see, a great evil took over my town, a place not much bigger than Raven's Cove. They were victims of said evil. In my wife's most dire time, I failed her. Can you imagine her terror and heartbreak in those final moments? I can, and I do. If I were there, I might have stopped it. They might still be alive. I killed them, sure as life. Relief flooded Paul. Guilt-ridden and a little bit off, maybe, but not a serial killer. Grief can drive a person to the brink of insanity. I've seen it many times. My heart breaks for you, and I am amazed you're a believer now after such a horror happening in your life. Many run from God at those times, yet you turned to Him. Why? Mostly by God's intervention. In addition, I have an ability to see things, things no one else can. 
So once I was ready to accept Jesus as my Lord, it was an easy leap to believe in what others do not see. Do you understand? No. As a child, I played with imaginary friends. As I grew older, these specters did not leave, and I realized no one else could see them. Then the dreams came, dreams and visions which came true. I tried to talk to my parents. They threatened me with a mental hospital. I learned to be quiet to avoid being labeled as crazy. No kidding, thought Paul. He knew at times it took great effort to just listen and not judge. Abba Father, help me to help this man. Josiah stopped talking and searched Paul's eyes. Thank you for trying to be open, Pastor Lucas. This is hard for anyone to understand, most of all me. Paul said nothing. Josiah continued. The older I got, the more I turned to anything to make these visions leave. I tried drugs as a teenager, but they made the images worse. I started to sneak alcohol and found some relief. So I hid in the bottle more and more. And in my cups is where I could be found on the night the thing murdered my family and most of my town. The thing? I don't have a name for it, but it is a strong servant of the evil foe. From what I've discovered, it moves around the earth. After destroying one town, it goes on to another of its appointed places. Ten years ago, a believing minister and his congregation threw it out of our small town. The tide turned in the battle when several people of the town chose to believe the minister and joined him in the battle. I believed the nightmare to be over. Josiah wiped his forehead with a handkerchief. Please go on. Five years ago, it destroyed a small town in China. The Chinese government attributed it to a mining accident. Since such accidents are common in China, it made for good cover. But the odd thing is those miners, which included women and children, all died within a five-day period. And though the government said it wasn't found for days, its explanation for the extreme decomposition of the bodies, a family member reportedly spoke with one of the victims a day before the discovery. I realized I made a mistake by believing this thing to be destroyed. I could not go to China, but I still saw the destruction taking place in my dreams and morning prayers. This is a horrible affliction. Our God knows why I have the gift of dreams and visions. So you think this thing is here? Why here, Mr. Williams? Paul asked. I don't have the answer, Pastor. I didn't even know why I felt compelled to come to Raven's Cove until I arrived. I have dreamed of this place. I have seen your church in my sleep, and I felt the dread I experienced before. I could not stay away, and now I will not leave. I can't stand by knowing what will happen as the thing works in secret to destroy Raven's Cove. I must try to help. Josiah's voice rose well above its natural calm. Alarmed and in an attempt to placate the hysteria Paul thought he perceived, he again placed a hand on Josiah's. What can I do to help you find peace? This evil one will not stop until it destroys every person in Raven's Cove. Its mission is to murder believers at the hands of unbelievers and take as many souls as possible before they can reach the Lord. Josiah paused. The blackened door of the Congregational Alliance swam into his mind's eye. Raven's Cove is ripe for the picking pastor. There is a wickedness here, and it's been a festering boil in this town for many years. I say this because there is a black spirit covering the Congregational Alliance, and for all its outward piety, it is a magnet, a draw of power for this entity. Otherwise, the black mist would not be there. Paul weighed the plausibility of Josiah's statement. It would explain the loathing spewed at him from, and on behalf of, Martin Plotno since the day Paul arrived in Raven's Cove. Paul remembered praying and praying for reconciliation and to be shown his sin which caused such a, he did not want to even think it, hatred of him. 
He lamented at how his small church lost more than a few people because of the lies perpetrated by the parishioners and the head of the Congregational Alliance. I can allow that Plotno is misguided, but evil? That's a harsh word. I know it's hard to believe, Pastor. I know. I have seen the destruction firsthand and still must pray to believe what cannot be proved by cold, hard facts. I would much rather forget it and move on with my life, but I cannot. Since I arrived, I have seen the signs pointing to the thing being here. If you are unable to believe there is such a malevolent being protecting the Congregational Alliance, then the first victim may convince you. This thing sucks the soul and blood from its victims. The body shows signs of advanced decay. The bones are pulp, the eye sockets are empty, there is no skin. The muscles are red but mushy. The stench is one of a corpse long dead. Josiah took a breath. There is one unmistakable sign confirming these are not murders at human hands, and it is the thing we are up against. Once the eyes are cleared, as will be done in an autopsy, there will be a pinprick through the back of each socket. The brains of the victims were sucked out through those pricks. There is nothing left. Paul felt he made a hasty decision on this man's innocence. If this turned out to be true, this man must be involved. How would I back up these facts, Mr. Williams? Go to the sheriff, tell him what I have said. He can confirm the state of the corpse. Why don't you go to the sheriff, Mr. Williams? Paul knew the answer. Josiah would be arrested on the spot. If not convicted of the murders, he'd surely be sent to the closest psych ward. Josiah rose to leave. He will hear you better than me. We'll speak soon. Paul did not look forward to another of these conversations. He did, however, look forward to talking to Bart Anderson. Josiah all but gave him permission to relate their conversation to the sheriff, and he would. As soon as he felt enough time passed, Paul jogged to the station. The bell swung in a wild back-and-forth motion from the force of Paul's entrance. Cat jumped at the noise. The phones and steady questions from the townspeople having all but stopped, she could, for once, focus on the second paragraph of the report on Miggy. Her shoulders slumped at the frustration she felt once again. Cat straightened and turned toward the counter. Pastor Paul Lucas, white as a sheet and out of breath, stood silent. He has to be one of the politest people in Raven's Cove, contrary to all the rumors, Cat thought. Hi, Paul. What brings you here today? Need to see Bart, Paul said in between gasps for breath. Busy, second body in two days. I believe I have information about the murders, Miss Toslowski. Cat looked at him. I'll get the sheriff, sit down and catch your breath. Want some water? Thank you, water would be great. Sheriff Bart had closed his normally open door in an effort to ward off any visitors or unnecessary phone calls. Cat knocked, no answer. Cat cracked the door and looked at Bart. She heard him saying, sulfur is a main component in the goo coming out of the eyes. Cat did a fake cough. Bart stopped, raised his head and glared. What is it? Cat ignored the angry tone. Pastor Lucas is here, says he has information about the case. Where do you want him? Amos still occupies the coffee interview room. He's writing out a statement of what he saw and anything he could think of to clear him of being the prime suspect. Guess he realized solving these murders took precedence over his fishing routine, especially when I said, you are a person of interest, Bart answered. Seems so. Now where do I put Pastor Lucas? Give me a minute to get ready and then bring him in. Cat ushered Paul in, the door whispered to a close behind him. She glanced quickly through the glass pane. Whatever Paul said made Bart study the medical examiner's report. He looked back at Paul. Fifteen minutes later, Bart and Ken thanked Paul and followed him out the door. Bart hesitated and turned around. Back in a bit. Tell Amos he can leave when his statement is complete. Think we have a better suspect. A better suspect? Do you know... 
The bell chimed and the door closed, leaving her in mid-sentence. Where do you think we can find this Josiah Williams? Ken asked. Well, as there is just one place to stay in town, I think we'll start there. If we don't find him, we'll find him soon enough. Gotta love a small town. The man can't get far without someone seeing him and happily sharing his whereabouts. Ken smiled. Any upside to this place would do. If you counted the beautiful Ms. Tovslowski, and he did, then there were two upsides to Raven's Cove. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to share it with others you think would also be interested. If you'd like to know more about me, go to maryannpoll.com and or authormasterminds.com forward slash m-a-r-y dash a-n-n dash p-o-l-l. Until next time, may the wind always be at your back, the sun on your face, and the good Lord walk beside you.